Hello world and welcome to Podcast in A Minor, where I give a home to the weird little songs I've written and use them as springboards to talk about delightful discoveries to cultivate a delighted mind. In this way, I dismantle my negative thoughts before they tower into depression. Disclaimer, I am not a mental health professional, and this podcast is not meant as treatment or cure. I also know that my brand of occasional depression might not look like your own struggles. This podcast is meant to explore the delighted mindset and reach across time and space to share human experience. Herman Melville suggested we all rub one another's shoulders as we wait for the universal thump that comes around to us all. It's like that. And now for this week's opening song. Bring your fears to the table, wrap them in your poetry, spread a platter for the muses, feel to weave your tapestry. Bring your fears, bring your fears to the workshop, knit them in your sweater. Welcome to Podcast in A Minor. I'm Amy Zollers, a poet and an artist, and I am seriously in one of my moods. You just heard Fears to Art with accompaniment from the Taylor Gemini Mini acoustic guitar. Hey, look, it's a weird day. I just, perhaps not an hour ago, learned that I didn't get a job I applied for. Do I want a job? No, I'm a poet and an artist. I have two jobs, albeit, in my case, of very modest pay. But the payment and deep satisfaction of a life dreamed into being, staggering, monolithic even, pleased as punch. But you know how it is. In the end, I'm sure it'll be fine. I'll go out and find a job for high school graduates like I always do, my Bachelor of Arts in German stuffed under the mattress with my clove cigarettes and cramps albums on Bible study nights. Then I'll do my best to cram my arts and poetries into evenings and weekends while my hair goes blissfully silver. I went way out on a limb for this one, this job I didn't get. It was a part-time position as an art teacher at an alternative school. If hired, I would have to scramble to get emergency certified as a teacher, taking classes in the afternoons and evenings, all while getting my bearings as a teacher to screen-bound disaffected teens. Sheesh, I was poised to change the world, everybody. The guys at my house being away at scout camp, my possible lesson planning as preparation has come to an abrupt end. I have time before me now, all to myself, and what shall I do with it? Watch all of the Nightmare on Elm Streets? Cut my hair off? Catalog my fears for a podcast? Trumpeting my, quote, failure to the world? Eleven listeners? Steep, too, was the preparation I made for the interview, which was three weeks ago. I was like those kids and parents in The Music Man, three weeks to enjoy the idea and cherish the fantasy, and not a cent due until later. Or something like that. My biggest fear when facing the interview was not losing the job, but the car ride. It was about a 45-minute drive, which is perhaps best lost in this time of high gasoline prices, 
but also a long time to know where I was headed and what I was about to do. And, well, living through the interview. Whether I would get the job or not, I knew I might be desperately ill-prepared by virtue of the fact that I've never been a teacher outside of homeschool and public library programs and those tiara classes I taught on Instagram and YouTube. And I do not possess a teaching certification. And the idea of sitting through an interview I might clearly blow was agonizing. Would my face flush red? Would I stammer? I think the interview went well, but what can you do? I brainstormed art lessons beforehand and binged a podcast specifically for new art teachers. Awesome. I researched the school, which honestly seemed like a great place to have sent my kid at some point. So I had a lot of positive things to say about the services they were offering and how I was way on board with that. Being married to a therapist all those years, too, gave me some good, ready answers. I applied at an alternative school. I uncertified, was making a big naked move outside the box. This school lives outside the box. Perfect. Yes. And yet. The three weeks waiting to know were a roller coaster of excitement and terror. At one point, I knew I was in way over my head and decided to just turn the job down if offered. Would I do so gracefully? Who cared? Then my husband gave me a killer pep talk, like he did when he talked me into leaving my nanny job early so we could get married. He said, you have no idea how many people are phoning it in in this life. You're focused and energetic. You have a lot to give. You can change lives. Your time doing art has been great, but now God wants more from you. I was grateful for those words spoken on our 21st anniversary. They gave me the courage to know I would accept the job if offered and move forward in finding an emergency certification program, which I did yesterday and filled out the application. Sigh. Side note, let me tell you about the school I chose. It's called Columbia College, though it has a campus in my neck of the woods, easy to get to. Quote from their website, the history of Columbia College begins in 1851 when Christian Female College received a charter from the Missouri legislature. And now I paraphrase, once a two-year all-female college that never missed a day of classes during the Civil War thanks to dedicated faculty willing to lose out on pay, it became a four-year co-educational school in 1970. But my fave is an anecdote from Missouri Ghosts by Joan Gilbert, which I will now read. Just a warning, this story does contain a suicide, so please take that into consideration as you decide whether to listen. Also, Columbia College in this story is referred to as Christian College, as it was known in the old days. And it concerns a young woman who was engaged to a man serving in the Confederate Army. She had vowed to wear only gray clothing so long as he did, and until she could put on her white wedding gown. When her fiancé was killed by Union soldiers in Columbia, not far from the college, We're told the girl immediately jumped from a three-story building called the Conservatory, now known as Williams Hall. Then, in the spirit, she began to manifest herself on campus as a fleeting figure in gray, usually glimpsed only on overcast, foggy, or misty days, leaving people uncertain of who or what they had seen. Sometimes, also, she seemed to pass through college buildings at specific times of day, an almost indescribable presence, which some people felt strongly, and others did not feel at all. The gray lady was basically benevolent. Sometimes, it said, students returned to their rooms to find their ironing done. 
On days that turned unexpectedly hot, dorm windows might have thoughtfully been raised to let in fresh air. One interesting little note on the haunting at Christian College, just on the basis of her attire, quote, gray lady, is a term used in the literature of the paranormal for ghosts of women who died violently for the sake of love. In 1965, Christian's Grey Lady apparently did a striking encore, gliding sedately past windows on the third floor of St. Clair Hall, a building that did not exist while she lived. Carrying a candle, she seemingly passed through walls, for all rooms opened only onto a hallway running parallel to the windows, and her progress was uninterrupted. Students out in a group, serenading, were amazed to see, on St. Clair's top floor, a white figure with a light slowly moving past the windows of vacant dormitory rooms. A few courageous girls rushed into the building, and though they found nothing there, it was only a few days before everyone knew that Penny Pittman, one of Christian's most admired and gifted students, had been, quote, campused, confined to school grounds. She had been found responsible for the frightening hoax, along with a fellow prankster from Texas. Dean Elizabeth Kirkman, whose office was in a tower of St. Clair, happened to be at work on the memorable night and well remembers the excitement of girls who burst in on her to report, quote, a light on the top floor going right through the walls. They were very frightened or pretended to be, she says. Only one clue never revealed to Pittman told the dean whom to send for. Penny Pittman was, the dean says, a brilliant student, winner of a trustee's scholarship, active in athletics and many campus activities, very popular with the other girls, but mischievous, mischievous. The dean adds, I asked her, Penny, what were you trying to do, scare everyone to death? She grinned and said, I guess so. And here's from Interview with a Ghost following that story. Pittman, who now lives in St. Charles and restores houses, is not at all averse to sharing how she and her friend achieved their puzzling effect. While one of them walked across the room, the other, identically clad in a big white beach towel, waited on the other side of the connecting wall, candle concealed, until her partner knocked to let her know that her own walk should begin. Then the first ghost scurried out into the hall and passed the room being haunted into the next room. There, she waited for the signal, ready to walk in her turn while the other scurried. Thus, they made their giggling, breathless way across the top floor of a building they knew a group of other students would be near that night. They also knew that in the darkness, their candles would attract the eyes of any passers-by. Being confined to campus was not, to Pittman and her friend, a big price to pay for the fun they'd had. The college yearbook, The Ivy Chain, that that year used a gray lady theme with illustrations portraying a ghost whose swirling gown revealed jeans and sandals. So that was the story of a double haunting, a reprised haunting at Columbia College where I was going to do a teaching emergency certification, except now I don't need to. But when we lived in Columbia and I would drive past Columbia College, like you could take several ways to get different places, of course, in town. But I always took that way because it went through, you know, the, the college campus reminded me of the story. And there were a cool, a bunch of cool old houses around there. So a fun memory, secondhand, and that was cheering, actually. But newsflash, the teacher shortage isn't all that bad if they don't want an uncertified hippie poet artist with silvering hair, okay? 
Stop being so dramatic, everyone. Well, it seems like a fine time to put in a song clip. First version of the theme song, actually, written in the bathtub one evening last February while I was skipping my pottery class. You can hear the bathwater running and everything. Must I, must I, in my mind if there's a Insight into a songwriter's process. Incidentally, so many are my moments in poetry live streams of saying, I wrote this in the bathtub, that I created a cartoon-style drawing of a glamour girl in her bubble bath so that I could hold it up to the camera every time I admitted to writing something while in the bath. That way, the public need not picture me in the bathtub if that was a problem for them. For podcasting purposes, just picture me as a young Mary Tyler Moore. Yes. Anyway, I wrote our theme song, Must I, while brooding and brooding and brooding some more over a slew of perceived failures. Most immediately, I'd been attending my pottery class for a month and seemed to be absolutely hopeless at throwing on the wheel. You know, making cylinders for mugs and such on the spinning thing. Oh, you know, the thing from the movie Ghost. I forgot all about that until that episode of Community, in which Jeff just stinks at pottery, which he chose as a blow-off class for an easy A. At the same time, there's a medical doctor in the class who is absolutely a superstar human being and throws a fantabulous, elaborate vase on his very first sit-down at the pottery wheel in your dreams, medical doctor superstar. I experienced a comparable existential pile-up last winter. I know new skills take time. Pie baking, knitting, guitar, harp. Believe me, I am well acquainted with the crucial ugly phase. But I'd wanted to do pottery for years and had only just found a studio nearby. I couldn't wait to get my hands in there. Two problems, though. Number one, machinery. And number two, difficulty in embracing the ugly phase because of a big bummer in January. Okay. The day after Christmas, I applied to participate in a virtual art market. A friend called my attention to the deadline, which was that night, and told me the Instagram account of Market of the Beast, it was called Market of the Beast, followed me so I would probably get in. And I did get in. That's when I realized it was Market of the Beast, which I had declined to apply to the year before because here is where the truth pops out. I'm a Christian and wasn't sure how joining something called Market of the Beast was a good fit for me. Okay, I do have some creepy, spooky art in my Etsy shop, of course. Not exclusively, I wouldn't say, although maybe I should double-check on that. Also, noting here that being a Christian in the art world, I am, believe me, tuned in to how, over the last few years, Christian has come to equal crackpot, And yes, there are a lot of conspicuous people these days saying they're Christians and making the rest of us look pretty damn nuts. I don't hide my faith, but it's a tricky time. Same goes for poetry, but I've met some people who are accepting of my differences to them as I respect and love them with their differences to me. I'm going to proceed in this episode as though it is not rude in America to talk about your Christian faith. I won't cram it down your throat, but I'll speak freely as who I am. So, I was accepted in the market of the beast. Allow me to explain myself. One, 
When my friend sent the frantic Instagram link with its deadline on the day after Christmas while I was at my in-law's house, I panicked and filled out the application. I didn't realize it was for Market of the Beast, but I was really trying to get the artist thing going so I could keep at it full-time in spite of financial pressures. I had already decided I would try to get into some art markets in the new year. 2. When I received notice a few days later that I was accepted, that's when I learned which market it was. And, fully aware of this, I went all in. I paid a fee. I downloaded their promotional artwork and promoted the heck out of the market scheduled for the beginning of February. The promotional artwork was all in hell flames, okay? I promoted it. They promoted me. I worked hard all month long making art for it. Block print cushions of cuddly skeleton babies and the sleepwalking murderer from the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Ordered extra knit cave prints from the print shop and whatever else all I did. But I was hustling all January long. I really enjoyed being so busy and had pretty high hopes for this Market of the Beast thing. No organization had ever promoted my work and I was proud of what I was creating. Neat! I mean, oh crap, does it sound like I sold my soul to the devil? Kind of. So what was the payoff then? No payoff. Exactly none. Zero payoff. Zero is exactly the number of art pieces I sold over the entire three-day weekend of the Market of the Beast. Zero is exactly how many pennies I earned. This is a big confession for me. What artist who's trying to make it out there wants to go around blabbing about selling nothing at their first art market. Holy crap. Shamefaced. That word in old 1950s teen novels or wherever I've seen it, exactly that. I didn't know which scarlet letter of the alphabet should be emblazoned on me, but I wouldn't have put up a fight while they were stitching it on. I felt like I had taken a big dump on my maker. Like I had told my creator, no thanks, nuts to you, and strutted off to swagger with the cool kids, turned my back on who I was. I'm not saying Market of the Beast is wrong or evil or bad. I'm just saying it probably wasn't the right fit for me. Well, obviously, I sold a big fat nothing. Maybe it sounds square. Maybe it doesn't. But my faith means a lot to me. God means a lot to me. And here, in my later 40s, out of sheer hard-headed desperation and panic, whose name had I taken? So that was my state of mind when I joined the pottery class, and the pottery wheel just couldn't give me a break, and I wrote our theme song. Hey, that's making uh, fears to art. (laughs) Here's another song I wrote called Pottery Anguish a few months later, indeed still utterly flummoxed at the pottery wheel. I'm all lit up with pottery anguish My teacher doesn't like me, I'm such a spaz The clay throws me on the wheel And hatred gives me pottery angst and all that jazz What the hell hands you so reliable For men by crossing up all tarts Aerobics machinery and ballet dancing Through my coordination on the apple cart I'm all lit up No, 
out. My pottery teacher likes me just fine. I mean, like most of the world, she's a lot younger than I am and probably just didn't know what to do with my particular brand of wheel spasmodica. Plus, I was pretty closed off in class sometimes, dealing with my own inabilities and faith betrayal, clearly cursed. I got through the rest of the week all right, plowing forward with art and poetry and partial completion of the 100-day challenge in songwriting. But on Monday nights at Pottery, I was highly visible and I could not fake it. I could not fake it. I was conspicuously struggling, which was uncomfortable publicly and in light of my guilt. Fears to the table. My fear in the hardest moments of 2022 is that the majority of steps I've made in life have been missteps. This, of course, is not true. When I think that, I am clinging to someone else's idea of success, not my own. I am not an experienced or even certified teacher. I had to consider the possibility that I would be passed over, and I did consider it. My husband had high hopes that, quote, once they meet you, blah, 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 etc., and bless him, nope. They can't see past the certificate, and I was unwilling to follow the rules. Actually, I was unaware that I should do such a thing until, you know, it was upon me. So sometimes life be like that. My pottery wheel skills have improved, by the way. They're not, you know, magnificent or anything, but improvement has undeniably occurred. Also, I have my own pottery wheel at last. After two months waiting for the Shimpo light, I realized they had clay boss wheels in stock. It came in like three days. I'm glad it came exactly when it did, my throwing skills having reached just the right level for me to be thrilled when it arrived. Like life, right? As a Christian, I won't skip over the fact that God forgives, and I won't deny my great need for forgiveness in life because I am not a perfect person. Sometimes I ruin it for people. Sometimes I ruin it for myself. But none of it is beyond redemption. Humans are resilient and try again, yay, even at my advanced age. We all get that crying jag once in a while, right, Roland S. Howard? Ugh, I adore him. May his rest be blissful. Incidentally, three of my poetry collections end with poems about Roland S. Howard, and he definitely graces the cover of Art Wraiths. This is a grand spot to include a poem break with The Birthday Party. Because this is a poem song. Officially, it's a poem song with one-inch sleigh bells stitched to champagne-colored satin gloves. So where's a little percussion this time? The title of the poem is The Birthday Party. Like to hear it, here it goes. In the birthday party of the mind, how did I get this many years? In the birthday party of the mind, how can I be blank years old in the birthday party of the mind? Where is Roland S. Howard? Where is Roland S. Howard? Why did I say those awful words? Regret is steep. Regret is deep. Regret is rattling the garden gate. 
self-hate, self-hate, self-flagellate. My sweet Jesus, my Jesus, my Lord, please forgive, forgive and save. Forgive, forgive, forgive. Sing your forgiveness to me here below. Where did Roland S. Howard go? Sing to me, Roland. Sing, she cried. Sing, she cried. Sing, she cried. Forgive me, Lord. I need thee every hour. Don't let the devil have me. Somebody kiss my navel. The end. Thank you. Somebody kiss my navel, said the Christian. Anyway, a poem about the perfection of imperfection. I made that recording about a year and a half ago for a friend in the Poetry Forum on the Blixa Bargeld website. More on that biz next week. You have my word. What now? I'm going to make a grilled cheese and maybe get some ice cream and new blue framed reading glasses at Menards, which is a hardware store, but a pretty short drive. Then I'm either going to read a load of old ghost stories or watch a load of scary movies. My brain will get to work on life's puzzles as I sleep, and I'll keep doing poetry about it. God bless us, everyone. All songs and poems written and performed by Amy Zollers. Reach out by email at podcastaminor at gmail.com or Instagram at podcast.in.a.minor. You can find my artwork on Instagram at hypnos underscore and underscore outrage and Etsy hypnos and outrage. See you next time. Must I, must I be encyclopedia neurotica? It's my ruin up.